those of you that have a bulletin, I have to tell you that the outline in your bulletin has nothing to do whatsoever with what I'm going to say today. <clears throat> From time to time, this happens. That something that was prepared, the Holy Spirit says, that was a great preparation, but that's just not it for today. And I was drawn back to a thought that actually I had begun last week when we talked about confused spirituality. And today I want to approach a topic that I feel God leading us to in the area of, of confused grace. Confused grace. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from you today, and I'm actually going to read it from the New King James Version because there is a, 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 words in that in verse 7 that I think are more accurate to the meaning of Scripture than what is in the, new, in the NIV. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, this is the word of the Lord. So he answered and said unto me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel is an Old Testament type of Jesus. In other words, he's an individual you look at and you see the qualities of Jesus in him. He was, he was known as a prince of restoration. And he said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Now, I want to interject here that mountain in prophetic writing in the Old Testament can mean all kind of things, but it rarely means physical mountain. And so it can mean uh, an empire, an imposing issue, a dominion or a power, but it rarely means a, a mountain. And it says, who do you think you are? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Now, if I was writing this in, in a, a book of the Bible, and I would call it the first Dominthians version, it would, it would say this, who do you think you are, geopolitical forces in this present age? Who do you think you are, kingdoms and dynasties and empires and armies? Who do you think you are? Because when Jesus shows up, you will be flat as a pancake. And he goes on to say, and he shall bring forth a capstone with shouts of, and this is the, the interpretation I love in the King James Version. It says, grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple and his hands will also finish it. So Father, as we approach your word this morning, I ask that you would extrapolate from it all that we need to grow in our understanding of grace in this very confused age. I pray that you would bring to us a level of maturity that, that allows us to let you do more work in our lives than we've ever done before. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I was raised in, in a family and taught from a very early age that learning and reading was very important. I was also taught from an early age that just because somebody told you something was true didn't mean that you should just receive it, but that you should do some research on your own to make sure that it was true. This attitude started, at least from my understanding, with my mom's dad, uh, my grandpa Peck, and he was a voracious reader, and he was a fantastic writer, and he was a wordsmith. We loved even the cards that he would send to us. We would hang on to just because they were so rich in the way that he could use words. After retiring as an executive from Perina Mills, he became a weekly op-ed writer for the local newspaper that they, in the town in Texas in which they lived. And, and he was in his 80s and, and approaching his 90s when they came to him and said, uh, Mr. Peck, we can no longer take your articles for the paper. 
written on your old typewriter. We, we need you, if you want to keep writing, you have to send them to us by computer and on this particular programming. And I believe that they thought that that would be the end of it for him and he would say, well, I just can't do that. But they did not know my grandfather. He went and bought a computer and in his 80s he taught himself how to use it really, really, really well. And he continued to write his articles until he was well into his 90s. I remember introducing Cindy to him for the first time when we were dating and introduced her and said she is an education major. One of the degrees that she is searching or, or that she is uh, being taught is a degree in reading. And, and he smiled and hugged her with this deep sense of approval that, oh, good, future generations of my family will also learn that words are important and that they, they will be readers. My grandfather did not believe in having conversations and baby talk. And so from all of us, I'm the oldest grandson and my sisters and other cousins, he wouldn't talk to us like babies. He would talk to us with real words. And so there were occasions all the time, I can remember as a little boy, we'd be holding a conversation and he'd use a word that I wouldn't know and I'd say, what does that mean? And he always had a Webster's Dictionary on his table and he would slide it across to us. And he'd say, I will spell the word, but you look it up and you tell me what it means. And so we began to learn from a very early age that vocabulary was important. And I proudly declare to you today that I was the first first grader ever to use the word optimistic, spelled correctly and in proper context as it related to see Spot Run. When I wrote, Spot is optimistic that he will run today. <laughs> he taught us the sanctity of words and that words are important when a society or culture suffers the, crunk, the corruption of, of its functional vocabulary, it loses, to one extent or another, the ability to think. Because we think not in pictures, but we think in words. And so what happens is people experience things and, and we feel things, but when we lack the functional vocabulary by which to adequately express those things, out of frustration, we act out in an inability to express it. And here's the way that that looks in a fifth grade boy who is sitting there next to this little brown-eyed girl who he suddenly realizes is the prettiest little girl in the world. And he wants to spend time with her at recess and he doesn't know how to say to her, you're the most beautiful person I know. So at recess he walks out to her and gets close to her and he reaches back and he punches her in the arm. And then he stands back and he smiles waiting for her to respond with all of the meaning that he meant and how much I admire you. She runs off to the teacher crying and turns him in. And he wonders what happened because he wasn't able to express himself in a vocabulary or what he was feeling on the inside. And this can actually happen to entire societies. At the end of my years as serving as the district youth director, the last youth retreat that I ever got to speak at. It was a group of churches from Queens, New York, and we were together in the countryside of Pennsylvania. And I had a chance to express to them that I was leaving the office and I was going to be moving into pastoring this church. And, and at the end of the last service, one of the young men came up to me and he goes, Pastor Doug, you are one bad preacher. And I recognized that in my lifetime, the word bad has completely changed meanings and become good. Another young man that was next to him, not wanting to be outdone, said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. And another said, Pastor Doug, you are one sick preacher. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation 
that came from that conversation. There is a tragedy that comes at a certain level that is attached when even this happens in biblical form, when we can't fully understand biblical, biblical vocabulary of words that we often use. And as a result of that, sometimes there are things that God says that become twisted because we've, we've lost some of the function of full meaning. Here's an example of that that would be relevant to our society. There are thousands, perhaps millions of children and teenagers and men and women, young men and women, who have a difficult time associating the biblical vocabulary of Heavenly Father or of Almighty Father of, or of a gracious Father with a grace-filled God because of their experiences with their earthly father that have done nothing to build the concept that God would be a loving father because that's not their context. That's not their personal context. Their idea of fatherhood has been distorted as a result of that. So sometimes the words with which we think about God actually distort the way we understand his activities within our lives. With that as a preamble, I want to approach this passage of Scripture that I read because there's some deep meaning that we desperately need today. There is a word in the book of Zechariah chapter 4 which has come to mean almost everything in the New Testament world, and as a result of that, it means almost nothing. And that word is grace. The word is grace. We use grace like people use ketchup. If you put enough ketchup on anything, it can make even something bad taste pretty good. And we have grown in this culture of, of taking this word grace and applying it in ways that, that I don't believe are necessarily appropriate. So today, what does grace really mean? I will confess to you that I, for years, thought that grace was strictly a New Testament reality, that, that the New Testament was about grace and that the Old Testament was about the law. And so you can imagine how remarkable it was to come across a passage of Scripture and find this graphic and profound image of grace here in one of the minor prophets. Today I want to talk first to you about this mountain that is described here. The picture of this is this. It is of us on one side of a huge mountain and Jesus on the other side. On one side, we are here and we recognize that we are in a saved relationship with Jesus because we understand Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In other words, we come to this understanding that we believe that grace was something that was extended to us for the purpose of our salvation, and the problem that many of us have with this aspect of grace is that we believe somehow that this is a one-time event, that once we have been saved by grace, that that grace no longer takes an active role within our life, but that somehow we begin to take ownership of everything that we must do after that. And so we turn and we face this, this mountain of separation that is between us and the Jesus who saved us, He's on the other side, and we want for the mountain to be gone. We want for it to become a plain, and we want where that mountain was to become a tabernacle, a temple, a place of, of refuge where we can meet Jesus and have a great testimony of his accomplishment within our life. But we want the wall of issues that separate us and our Savior to be gone so that we can have a divine encounter. But the mountain remains, and here's the issue. Because we believe that grace was only at work in our salvation and doesn't seem to have any responsibility in our lives after that, we take possession of that mountain. 
we start to take responsibility for it. We start to own the mountain of our issues ourselves. And this mountain is different for every one of us. Perhaps your mountain today is a mountain of hurt that is keeping you from a deep relationship with Christ in a new way. Maybe it's anger or resentment or unforgiveness or bitterness or addiction or pornography or a wounded spirit or prejudice. Whatever it is, this mountain, it is a sin, it's a bondage, whatever it is, and, and it looms so large that it is constantly sneering at us. It's mocking us. And all of our feeble attempts to, cry, to try to create our own holiness. And we hate that mountain. But it remains. But we own it for ourselves. You see, somehow we begin to say, grace is how I got saved. Grace is what God did to bring me to himself. But at that point, I've got to put my shoulder to the grindstone. I've got to attack this mountain of my issues. I've got to dig it away. I've got to overcome it. Somehow, I've got to earn the victory all by myself. And here's the deal. That mountain and the effort that you try to remove it will kill you. Because no matter how hard you attack it, no matter how hard you dig at it, no matter how loud you scream at it, that mountain will not move. And it takes us and it tells us this is the truth in the Bible when it says to you, it's not by might and it's not by power. In other words, there's nothing you can do about this mountain. And so you can put all the might and power you have into that mountain. And you know, God's a gentleman. He will stand there on the porch of heaven alongside of his angels and he will watch you as you line up to hit that mountain of issues again and you run into it and boom! And he's going to, oh, oh my goodness. That child of mine is going to hurt themselves. And you back up and you think, I'll do better this time. And you run into it, boom! And he, oh, that one's going to leave a mark. Until we batter and bruise and wound ourselves in futility, which is predicted by Scripture who tells us it's not by might and it's not by power that that mountain is ever going to move. And so finally, what happens so many times is we collapse at the foot of the mountain and we cry to a distant Jesus on the other side and we're going, Jesus, I quit. I'm sick of this. I've done all I can do it. I'm a failure. I can't take it anymore. I can't get this mountain out of my life. And here's what we think is going to happen. We think that from the other side of the mountain, we project onto Jesus the face and the voice and the attitude of an old, mean high school football coach. We think that Jesus is going to yell back, Get up, you little sissy! You little wimp, Demit, you're a chicken. Get up, hit that mountain again. Run at it harder this time. Hit that thing with all you've got. And we think that that's what we're going to hear from the other side. And we develop this idea that God is like the driven father of a little leaguer who will not be happy until his kid plays like Derek Jeter, screaming at his kid, trying to force him to do something that he knows is impossible. No matter how many times you attack this mountain, you will never move it. And if that is your Jesus today, if that is your Jesus that sounds an awful lot like my devil. I heard Ruth Graham speak this past Monday night. There was a significant amount of pressure on her as she grew up. 
as you might imagine, when your dad is Billy Graham. And she shared honestly about the wrong path that she had taken, the encouragement that she received, the embarrassment that she had even when her own daughter got pregnant out of wedlock and the disappointment in her inability to move her own mountains. And she shared that there was an attitude that was in their family that there was a part of it growing up that you needed to work on your own mountains. And she said, you get this image of a coach who stands behind us swinging the braided whistle strap at our legs if we don't match up to the effort that he thinks is necessary for us to attain a righteousness of works. And I have to tell you that none of us are exempt from that. Even ministers are not exempt from that. There are many of us in ministry that are trying to preach the mountain out of our own lives. There are times that we're trying to think, if I just work harder, or if I just do this a little bit better, then I won't feel the lash of Jesus' disappointment if we don't preach good enough or work hard enough or build a big enough congregation or somehow reach the expectation of the person with the highest standards within our church or constantly fighting with the comparison issues of the most successful-looking pastor or church in our community or trying to compete with the TV preachers that I hear about all the time of, oh, pastor, I just wish that you could preach a message like that. And we deal with this inside of ourselves, and it creates, creates a self-anger. It creates a self-disappointment that causes us not to run to his grace but to become disgraced, to become ungraced to become de-graced. So I tell you today as a church, as we walk together in this, none of us have it all together. None of us have it all together. But we point to the mountain mover. You see, the holiness legalist says this, grace is God's operation to finally make you strong enough to move your own mountain. But that won't work because Scripture tells us that it's not by strength. And you will never get strong enough to move that mountain. And so what happens is it condemns us to the frustration of constant defeat. It's one of the reasons why this morning some of you raised your hands and said, I am not feeling the presence of the Lord because you've been walking in defeat because you've not been able to move your own mountain. On the other hand of that is the liberal humanist, which tells you that grace means that God doesn't care about your mountain. He just winks at the angels and he says, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. And the problem with that view of grace is that it condemns us to the destructiveness of the issue within our life that becomes the mountain. And it never gets dealt with. Real grace that removes the confusion. Real grace is neither God saying to you, get strong enough and you will finally break through, nor does he say, I'm okay with the mountain and its destructive power in your life. Authentic grace says, God looks at you and says, I want that mountain out of your life. I want that issue out of your life, but I will remove it from you. I will do the work for you. And so we collapse at the mountain of God and we cry out, Lord, I quit. I quit. I'm done with this. I'm so frustrated because I'm not able to make myself who I want to be. I never can work hard enough to earn your love. I quit. I'm done. And we expect to hear something from the other side, but what we hear is Jesus goes, good. It's about time. I've been waiting for this moment because I can't start until you quit. I can't do the work.
work until you finally realize this mountain was never yours to move. It was mine to move. And then he says, now stand back. And there's this beautiful and surprising passage where it says, Jesus shouts. It's one of the few places in the Bible where it says that. And, and what it does say is, is he doesn't shout to you, muscle up, stand up, hit it again, obey the rules better, you can do better this time. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, if you look at the scripture, not only does he not say any of that, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And he yells, Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. And we stand there in a moment of absolute disbelief that this thing that we've been fighting for for so long and fighting against had no power in the presence of the voice of a living God who said, this is the work of grace within your life. It's not merely a salvation experience. My grace is at work within you every day. You live and you eat and you breathe. It's all by my grace. Your whole life is a picture of grace. Your mountains give my grace an opportunity. But we like to take possession of the mountain. We like to somehow think that I can earn the love of God by overcoming this. And what it does is it makes us disgraceful people. And you get enough disgraceful people together and you can have a whole disgraceful church loaded with bickering, complaining, arguing, and whining because they falsely concluded that they will be able to move this mountain in their own life. And if they find that they think they have succeeded, then they put undue expectations on everybody else that if I can do it, you can do it. If you can just attain this righteousness that I am showing you. Many years ago, the first church that Cindy and I were the lead pastor at, there was a family that had had quite a history of being Christians and, and as a result of that felt that their righteousness needed to be an example and our church began to grow and people were getting saved. How many of you know that when you come and you get saved, you don't need to be clean first. God does the cleaning. And, and they were expressing to us, you know, I, Pastor, I, you need to be careful. The people that are coming in and getting saved, they're not our kind of people. And I remember thinking to myself, what kind of people are they? And they began to get so discouraged that their power may be diluted by all these new people that were coming to Christ that there was one time in the lobby that this lady went up to a young lady that was there. She and her husband were there for the first time because they were spiritually inquisitive. And she began to say to her, you need to get your life together before you come to Jesus or you're going to really mess up the reputation of our church. Now my wife heard that. And my wife walks over to her and gently but firmly grabbed her by the elbow and marched her right into my office and closed the door and began to have a conversation with her about what it means to be disgraceful in a false righteousness. The other side of that coin is to be graceful people. Two of the most graceful men that I know in my life are my father-in-law, Pastor James Rayner, and my dad. I loved working with my father-in-law for a number of years. He's the one that taught me how to be a pastor. What I loved about him the most is that during the years that we were together, and even since then, it is not an uncommon occurrence for him to call me. And he'll have listened to a message, or if he was there, he would have heard it, and he, he comes up to me and he hugs me. Oh, son, 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 that was the greatest message I've ever heard you preach. 
I've never heard anybody take that scripture and unlock it. Like it just, and he did this again and again and again. Now, I, I recognize on an intellectual level, nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece week after week after week. But who do you think I was looking for when I was done preaching? I'm looking for somebody who's going to speak grace into my life. My father was the same way. From the very first breath I took, the discernment of God fell upon him, and he looked at me, and he titled me the number one son. For all of you who are men here, I'm sorry, the best you can hope to attain is number two. And he's built that into my life. Thankfully for him, he never had to be doubted because I only had sisters after me. And you'd say, well, Pastor Doug, they were probably lying to you. Those are men of God. They don't lie. What they were doing is gracing me. How many of you know we can do with a little bit more of gracing one another? Let me just add this as a piece. Do you know it's possible for you to disgrace yourself? Some of you stand in front of a mirror every day and you look at your face and you begin to profess all of the things that you hate about yourself. Because when we look into a mirror, we don't just see the visage, we see deep in the eyes. We see deep into our spirit. We know who we are. And sometimes we look in the mirror and we say, I can't believe that you are who you are. I can't believe that you do that again and again and again. And we begin to yell at ourselves and we talk bad about ourselves and to the point where there are some who are disgracing themselves because they can't stand who they are. And then it comes out like this. I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Have any of you ever heard anybody say that? I just can't forgive myself. Listen to me. Don't take offense at this, but who do you think you are? Are you a more righteous judge than God Almighty? If God has forgiven you, that settles it. It's over. It's done. The judge has spoken. You are free, so quit disgracing yourself. Zechariah 4, verse 9, as we get to the conclusion of this, says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. I love thinking about the hands of Jesus. We recognize that when we think of the hands of Jesus, we picture the nails that went through those hands as he hung on the cross for us. We recognize those hands put forth a lot of work to bring about a righteousness in us that we could not earn ourselves. But I want you to read to the end of it because it says this at the end. It says the hands of Jesus, we know that he was pierced for us, but it says his hands will also finish it. You see the work of the mountain that you have worked so hard about. It's not your hands that's going to do the work. you got to take your hands off and say, here's my issue, Lord. Here's my mountain. I'm going to stand back. Let your hands finish the work of this issue in my life because I just can't do it anymore. I'm going to ask our keyboardist if she would please come. There's a really fascinating for those of you who have read the Bible all the way through, then you already know the story. You read of Jesus and his redemption and his love for unlovable humanity. Completes the sacrifice that gives us the transfer of our sins to him and the transfer of his grace to us. We read that and we rejoice. But last words are important. Last words are important. So for those of you who have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the last chapter of the last book 
of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. And then I want you to move to the very last verse of the anointed Holy Scripture. Because here's the last word as it relates to the issue of the mountain in your life. The last thing it said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And we feel the relief on our shoulders. your mountain, it's not mine. I'm tired of being bruised by running into this thing. I'm tired of looking myself in the mirror and feeling like a failure. I give it to you today. How many of you just need to give a mountain to God today? Say, that's me, Lord. I, I have a mountain. I, I'm so tired of running into this thing. I'm so tired of picturing you like an old mean football coach who screams and yells at me because I can't accomplish it. I'm just, I can't do it anymore. And today, the word of the Lord comes and says, let me take confusion out of the grace picture because I stand there and say, grace, grace to your mountain and it will melt not because of your work, but because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to ask our altar workers if they'd please make their way to the front. This is, this is a message that requires a response. Because some of you, the Lord wants you to know it's, t- it's time for you to quit disgracing yourself. It's time that you quit letting yourself set your own self-esteem based on what is under the blood. It's time for you to come to the realization that the mountain, this issue, whatever it may be in your life, is not one that you're going to attack, but it's got to be melted by the grace of God. So here's what we're going to do. I know that there's some of you today that you need to respond. You need to step out from where you're at. You need to come and have somebody pray with you. There's something about taking a step of faith and moving out in obedience that begins to release the grip of the lock of things on your heart. And sometimes we make it so easy, we just want you to raise a hand on quick prayer and then you rush out of here. But I do believe that we are going to be called into a day and an age where we as believers are going to have to stand up and say, this is what I believe and this is who I am and I'm not ashamed of that because I've tried to do it on my own and I do not have the strength to move this mountain. 